are you? Good. Hi, kids. I'm Bob the Tomato. Or perhaps you know me better as a somewhat uptight British asparagus. Or maybe you'll know me as a cantankerous decorative gourd. Or a really old grape who wonders why he's in a vegetable movie. Or, uh, let's see, a tiny fresh pea who throws slushies from a wall. Or maybe you just know me best as the voice that says, And now it's time for City Songs with Larry, the part of the show where Larry comes out and sings a silly song. Uh, my name is Phil Fisher. I, I, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Does your regular pastor do that? No. No. He's boring. Okay, sorry. Don't tell him I said that. Is he here? He's not here, is he? Don't tell him I said that. Okay. We Americans are known for a few things. In some parts of the world, we're known as being loud, uh, aggressive, uh, but almost everywhere in the world, we're known as being dreamers. That's a big thing with Americans. We have lots of countries have national birds and national trees and national flags. We're one of the only countries, I think, that has a national dream. We call it the American dream. Uh, we love dreaming. And, and I mean, you think about it in terms of kids, you, know, you go to Disney World and you're right on the big sign when you drive into Disney World, it says where dreams come true. And people like to stop and take their picture so much that there's a sign next to the sign saying, do not stop your car here on the interstate and get out to take your picture because then you get run over and it messes up your dream coming true. Um, <laughs> So we, and we give, you know, a dream is a wish a heart make, your heart makes. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. We, we, we feed that to our kids from the time they're born, and you think, yeah, it's just for kids. No, watch almost any TV commercial for a financial product. Your dream is out there. We'll help you find it. Uh, we will ensure your dream, making dreams come true since 1890-whatever. We do it for, for grown-ups, too. We love our dreams, so I wanted to ask you today, have you ever had a dream? And if your response was, sure, I was at my high school reunion in my underwear. No, 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 no. That's not the kind of dream I'm talking about. You see, dream is actually a tricky word because it has more than one meaning. In fact, according to Gallup, it has four different meanings. Number one, dream, a series of thoughts, images, or emotions occurring during sleep. Number two, an experience of waking life having the characteristics of a dream. Number three, something notable for its beauty, excellence, or enjoyable quality. And number four, a strongly desired goal or purpose. So the whole high school reunion underwear thing was a, was a type one dream, something weird that shows up in your brain while you're sleeping. What I'm talking about is a type four dream, a strongly desired goal or purpose, or to put it another way, a deep longing. Have you ever had a dream? I have, but unlike many Americans, my dream wasn't for, for riches or fame or fortune. My dream was to have an impact, to make a difference, to, to, to make a difference in the lives of kids, to take the, the values of the Bible and stream them through initially VHS cassettes and then DVD players and then TVs and computers into as many homes as I could, to do as much good as I could. And as of September of 2002, 
all my dreams were coming true. Now, VeggieTales is something that on paper makes no sense at all. It is a series of children's videos where limbless talking vegetables act out Bible stories. Try raising money with that pitch. It was created in a spare bedroom by a guy who got kicked out of Bible college after only three semesters for failing chapel. A guy who had no money, no connections, and no idea what he was getting himself into. And and yet somehow it became not only the best-selling Christian video series of all time, but ultimately the best-selling direct-to-video series of any kind of all time, with actually, as of uh, this year, more than 65 million videos sold to date. Yeah, it's... uh... There's a lot of videos out there somewhere. But the VeggieTales phenomenon went far beyond the sale of videos. Teenagers and college kids embraced Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. VeggieTales parties started sprouting up on college campuses, first at Christian colleges, like you might expect, but ultimately at places like the University of Michigan and Texas A&M. A CNN poll found VeggieTales among the top 10 most watched videos on college campuses nationwide. Larry the Cucumber t-shirts were cited at dance clubs in downtown Chicago. And perhaps most astonishingly, VeggieTales was directly parodied in a two-minute animated spoof on Saturday Night Live and referenced by four different episodes of The Simpsons. VeggieTales was an enormous success. It was my dream come true. It was a great story, too. Small-town kid beats the odds, becomes a huge success, changes the way people think about talking vegetables. The story of VeggieTales' success is a story we love to hear. It's the story the Wall Street Journal wanted to hear. It's the story People Magazine wanted to hear. It's the story Time and Newsweek wanted to hear. But it isn't the story I'm going to tell you today. I'm going to tell you a different story. In fact, it's not really a story about VeggieTales at all. It's a story about me. So like many of you, I imagine, I grew up deep in the evangelical Christian community. My mother was the choir director of our our local church in small-town Iowa. My dad was the Sunday school superintendent. We were there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meetings in Awana clubs, potlucks, and church picnics. My great-grandfather was one of the first radio preachers in America and started a Bible and missionary conference in northwest Iowa in 1935 that's still going on today. For the first 25 years of my life, I never missed a summer at the Bible conference. So growing up in church and at Bible and missionary conferences, there are certain evangelical phrases that sort of stick with you. Phrases like, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. They're better if they rhyme. That phrase really hit me. If the only things that mattered were the things that I did for Jesus, well, then then that's what I wanted to do. But growing up, there was another phrase that stuck with me. God can't steer a parked car. Mm. They might not have been scripture technically, but they sure smelled like it. So if the only things that mattered were the things I did for Jesus, and and if God really couldn't steer a parked car, then I had to get going. I had to get moving. I I had to start doing stuff. I had to get busy. 
I'd learned at a fairly early age that I had some ability to tell stories. So I, I made my first animated film when I was about nine years old. And by the time I was 14, I knew that I was going to make movies someday. And that would be my work for Christ. So I decided I'd go to Bible college to figure out my theology and then go to film school to figure out what to do with my theology. I never made it to film school, and after three semesters of Bible college, my new friend Mike Naraki and I were both invited not to return. <laughs> we had failed chapel. So I came back to Chicago and got a job in video production. And after a couple of years, I had managed not only to learn the world of, of video production, of shooting and editing, but also the new budding world of computer animation, and that got me excited. Therein, I thought... I can make my stories. I could create characters to make my contribution to the kingdom, to bring my dream of impact to life. In 1993, with money from friends and family and the help of just two other kids, I, two other guys right out of, of college, I produced the first episode of VeggieTales, a rather odd little video series starring talking vegetables that loved God. We didn't sell very many copies. We sold them direct through the mail initially. But the people who bought it really, really liked it. And they told their friends who really, really liked it. And they told their friends who really, really liked it. And before long, we'd sold a million videos. And then two million. And then three million. And then five and ten million videos. And we started getting letters, as many as 400 a day, from as far away as Australia. Mostly from parents wanting to tell us what an impact we were having on the lives of their kids. God was using my efforts. Lives were being changed. So, so I decided it was time to get busier, to dream even bigger. We could do even more good. So we started producing books, records, computer games, toys, a live touring show, shows at theme parks, and even our own feature film. I figured if I could have this much impact just by making a few VHS cassettes, think of the impact I could have if I built the next Disney. Of course, I realized that would make me the next Walt. I kind of liked the sound of that. Turns out, so did a lot of other people. I met with artists from Disney and DreamWorks and Warner Brothers, and, and some of them were Christians, and, the, and they thought, hey, he could be the next Walt, even better, the Christian Walt, and they wanted to sign up for the ride. So I hired all of them and put them to work on all the projects I'd set into motion. By the year 2000, we'd gone from three people on staff to more than 200. We were the biggest animation studio between the coasts. We'd just been named one of 10 studios to watch in worldwide uh, animation by Animation Magazine, and I had just been named in a PBS special, one of 10 people to watch in worldwide religion. Pretty good for a Bible college dropout. Right about then, everything started to go wrong. The management team I'd put together to grow the company had done a wonderful job hiring a whole mess of people, but they couldn't get along with each other and they couldn't get along with me. We spent months arguing about strategy, direction, spending, how many VeggieTales videos we could make before people would finally get sick of them. You name it. And then in the middle of all that arguing, our sales stopped growing. It just completely stopped growing. And this was really bad because most of the people I had hired, people that had moved their families across the country from places like Burbank, California or, or Orlando, Florida, I could only afford if sales had continued to grow. In April of the year 2000, I realized I was going to have to do something that, that I had always told myself I would never do, let people go from 210 to 180 
to 140, down to 100. Every round of layoffs broke my heart. Every face that had come in beaming with enthusiasm, excited to be a part of something bigger than they were, walked out stained with disappointment, with tears for a dream that for them had ended way too soon. Now, in the middle of that, we released our first feature film, Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. And even though it was only supposed to do about this much at the box office, it was, after all, a small, independent, religious vegetable movie, not a booming category. I thought, okay, if it does double that, if it did double that, then I could hire everyone back and I could keep this going and keep this dream alive. And God could do that because he can do anything, so he could do that. But he didn't. And then the home video came out, and I thought, okay, it's only supposed to sell about this many DVDs, but if it sold twice that many, then I could keep this going and keep this dream alive. And God could do that, but he didn't. And then in the middle of that, a uh, former distributor took us to court, claiming we'd breached a verbal agreement. We knew we were in the right, but they refused to settle, so I had to spend two and a half weeks in a federal courtroom in Dallas, Texas, wearing a suit and a tie, which for an artist is the third level of hell. (laughs) As I sat there listening to the opposing lawyer paint me as a liar, all I could think was, okay, God, I think I can still keep this together, keep this going somehow. If you will just show up in this courtroom and show these jurors the truth in this situation. And he could have, but he didn't. The jury gave them everything they were asking for and more, $12 million in damages. And walking out of court that day, I knew that it was over. It was my third strike, and I was out. I knew my company, Big Idea Productions, would have no choice but to go into bankruptcy, and that everything I had built in the prior 14 years, every character I had created, every song I had composed, every story I had written, would get packed up into a box and sold at an auction to the highest bidder to pay as much of our debt as possible. It was right about then that a big Christian university called and asked if I would deliver their spring commencement address. And I had to say no, because I had no idea what to say, because I had no idea how God could just stand back from something that was doing so much good and watch it fall apart. And then I started hearing his whispers. Actually, they'd started about a year earlier when I got an email from a woman I had never met who I don't believe had ever met me. She thanked me for the work I was doing and talked about the impact I was having and then closed the email by warning me to keep an eye on my pride. And I thought, ooh, that's a little forward. The emails kept coming every month, every other month. I'm glad things are going so well for you. Of course, by then they weren't, but she didn't know that. But keep an eye on your pride. And then, in the spring of 2003, just before the lawsuit came to trial, we had one last prayer meeting at Big Idea. The company was now down to just 65 people from 210, and only 13 showed up at the prayer meeting because everyone was just so depressed. But the 13 of us prayed fervently that God would save Big Idea Productions, that he would give Phil the wisdom to save Big Idea Productions. But in the middle of that, there was one woman who was an amazing prayer warrior, the wife of one of our Disney artists, who was quiet during the meeting. Then as folks were leaving and everything was done, she got up and walked up to me and said, I think God has something for me to say to you. She said, I don't think this is about God 
and big idea productions. She said, I think this is about God and Phil. And before it's over, she said, I think you might have to say goodbye to all of us. I couldn't breathe. I mean, how could it not be about big idea? Big idea was everything. It was my dream. It, w- it, was, it was how God was using me to change the world. It was my work that I was doing for Christ. It was, it was everything. I didn't know what to do with that. Then God got tired of whispering and decided it was time to just speak plainly. I told you about my great-grandfather's Bible conference in Iowa. Well, by then I hadn't been in a few years because, of course, I got busy and there was no time for a Bible conference. But that year, my mom, who actually was the director of the conference by then, said, you should come this year, just take a break and come on out. The speakers are going to be great. Just come on to the Bible conference. And I almost did, and then I thought, no, I'm going bankrupt, and that really takes it out of you. So she went out to Iowa, came back, and handed me a cassette tape. Do you remember cassette tapes? They were square, rattle when you shook them, like square CDs. Do you remember CDs? They were like physical manifestations of MP3s. Um, She came back and said, uh, I think this is for you. It was a sermon preached by an old family friend, a pastor named uh, Richard Porter. And he started out his message by saying, what does it mean when God gives you a dream and he shows up in it and then without warning, the dream dies? What does it mean? And I thought, okay, you have my attention. He started telling his story. He, at that point, he was the senior pastor of a large church in Vancouver. He had spent the prior 18 months leading a revival effort across the Vancouver area. And churches had come together, and they'd filled a sports stadium for an amazing worship service, and the Holy Spirit was moving. And so they started planning the next one and the next one and the one after that. And he said he was pretty sure at any moment he was going to get a phone call from Christianity Today magazine saying, we hear there's something going on in Vancouver. Tell us all about it. And then without warning... 9-11 happened, and everyone got distracted, and the whole thing just fell apart. And he was so exhausted, so physically burnt out, that he could not get out of bed. His doctors told him to take 12 months off. His elders told him he could have nine. And day after day, he lay in bed, wrestling with God, saying, if this is what it's like to work for you, I don't know if I can do it anymore. And in the middle of that dark time, he went to church with his daughter. And his daughter's uh, pastor preached a sermon on the story of the Shunammite woman from 2 Kings chapter 4. Now everybody knows it's very popular. No, okay. (laughs) The Shunammite woman, I'll paraphrase it. The Shunammite woman was a wealthy woman in Israel. Every time Elisha, the prophet, would come through the area, she would cook for him. Apparently, she was a good cook because he started stopping by a lot. So finally, she goes to her husband and says, we should build a room on the roof for Elisha. So now he could come over, have a meal, take a nap. Every pastor's dream. Uh, He's so appreciative of her that he calls her in one day and says, you've been so kind to me. What do you need? What can I do for you? And she says, "I, I don't need anything. I have a home among my people. But Elisha's servant goes to him and says, well, sir, her husband is very old and she has no son, meaning in that day, in that society, before long, she would be destitute, homeless. So Elisha calls her in and says, a year from now, you will hold a son. And you can see how deep that longing is in her by her response. She says, do not lie to your servant. She's not calling Elisha a liar. What she's really saying is, 
don't go there. Don't touch that. Don't even wake that dream up. Elisha says, no, a year from now you will hold a baby boy. And sure enough, a year later, there she is holding a son. And and you can imagine how much she loves that boy, because not only is he her son, but he's the promise. He's this dream that God has given her. And then one day as the boy's growing up, he goes out to his father in the field and says, Dad, my head hurts. Like most dads, father says, go see your mother. So the boy goes to to the woman, the Shunammite woman, crawls up in her lap, curls up, and dies. And there she is holding the dream God gave her dead in her arms. She takes the boy up to Elisha's room and puts him on Elisha's bed. And then she goes to find Elisha. He sees her coming in the distance and and says, is everything all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? And she says, everything's all right. But she tells him what's happened. And Elisha says, okay, here's here's what you do. Take my staff and my servant. Go back to your son. Uh, and And she says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So he says, okay, I'll come too. So Elisha comes back, he goes up to the room alone, he kneels and prays, and then he lies down on top of the boy, hand to hand, foot to foot, and the boy sneezes three times and wakes up. And Elisha brings him back down and hands him back to his mother. That's the story of the Shunammite woman. What is the point of that? I mean, why would God even put that poor woman through that exercise? What the young pastor said that day was, if God has given you a dream and breathes life into it and shows up in it and it dies, it may be that God wants to know what is more important to you, the dream or him. The Shunammite woman's response is clear. She heads straight for Elisha. He's the man of God, and she wants to be as close to God as she can. When Elisha sees her and asks, is everything all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? She says, everything's all right. But when when he says, go with my servant back to your son, she says, as long as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. She doesn't understand what was going on, but she's going to hang on to God no matter what. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. And I can understand that if I think, you know, he who has God plus a nice new car has nothing more than he who has God alone. Or he who has God plus a brand new house has nothing more than he who has God alone. But if God is infinite and infinitely capable of meeting our needs just with himself, you can't add to infinite Nothing plus God is more than God alone. So you have to put everything in that space. He who has God plus a warm, healthy marriage has nothing more than he who has God alone. And the one that really knocked me down. He who has God plus an amazing ministry reaching millions of lives around the world has nothing more than he who has God alone. My friend Rick's conclusion, if God gives you a dream and the dream comes to life and God shows up in it and then suddenly without warning the dream dies, it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you, the dream or him. And once he's seen that, you may get back your dream or you may not and you may live the rest of your life without it. But that'll be okay because you'll have God. 
This truth washed over me like I was standing under a waterfall. And then I thought about Abraham and Isaac. Okay, Abraham, God gave him a dream and a promise, and from you I'm going to bring a great nation, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea and all that. But, but there's a voice inside Abraham saying, yeah, but I don't even have a son. So God says, okay, we'll start there. And along comes Isaac. And you can imagine how much Abraham loves Isaac because he's not just his son. He's the promise. He's the dream. He's everything. And then one day God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, what do you love more, me or your dream? Well, that's easy, God. You. You. Okay. Put him on the altar. Kill him. But he's, he's the promise. I mean, he's, he's out here. You're going to use me to change the world. He's, he's everything. Put him on the altar. Kill him. And what God learned about Abraham that day is that Abraham would let go of everything before he would let go of God. God said, okay, now I can use you. Suddenly, I found myself facing a God I had never heard about in Sunday school, a God who apparently wanted me to let go of my dreams. Why would God want us to let go of our dreams? Because anything I am unwilling to let go of is an idol, and I am in sin. I realized that my good work had become an idol that defined me. Rather than find, finding my identity and my relationship with God, I was finding it in my intense drive to do good work. Wait, but aren't we supposed to do good works? Well, sure, as the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, there you go. Let's get busy. God can't steer a parked car. Wait a minute. Read the second half of the verse. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not run spastically, chasing them down. Not panic, looking for them. Just walk in them. So God had in mind, even before I was born, the good works he wants me to do. I I don't have to make them up. I don't have to craft a vision paper. I don't have to try a bunch of stuff and see what works. I just have to listen. The problem with the saying, God can't steer a parked car, is that while it is cute... It is not biblical. When people of great faith in the Bible don't know what God wants them to do, they don't do anything. They wait on him. I have just recently learned how to wait on God. So what does it look like for me? Well, after Big Idea Productions fell apart and all the leftover pieces, including many of my friends, were swept up and moved to Nashville, Tennessee by the new owners, because apparently that's where all the Christians are supposed to live now, (laughs) I spent some time hurting, just hurting. And then I started reading the Bible. I'd taken a small office in the uh, Wheaton area a couple blocks from my house, just for me, and every day I would walk to my office and spend the morning just reading the Bible and praying. No agenda, no sermon to write, no video series to compose, just reading and praying. This went on for weeks. At first, I was really anxious about finding the next big thing God wanted me to do, about finding my next big idea. But after a few weeks stretched into a few months, I realized that I didn't care so much anymore. Eventually, it struck me that I no longer felt the need to write anything. I didn't need to have any impact 
at all. Whatever needs I had were being met by the scripture I was reading and by the life of prayer I was developing. My focus was shifting from impact to God. It took several months, but what I was starting to feel I can only describe as a sense of, of giving up, of, of dying, which scared me at first because I wasn't sure exactly what it was that was dying within me. And then one day it was clear. It was my ambition. It was my will. It was my hopes, my dreams, my life. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis' Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, involving a boy named Eustace who is so prideful, selfish, and greedy that he wakes up one day to realize he has literally turned into a dragon. Life as a dragon proves so lonely and his dragon skin so uncomfortable that, that, he, that he soon longs to be human again. He longs to be back with his friends. In this scene, Aslan the lion leads Eustace the dragon to a pool of water. Eustace enters the pool to soothe his aching dragon skin, and he tries scratching at the skin, but he can only dislodge a couple of scales. And then Aslan says, lie down, this is going to hurt. And with a long, terrible claw, Aslan digs deep into Eustace's skin, ripping it wide open. It is the most painful thing Eustace has ever experienced, but when it is over, he stands up, a boy again, reborn. God could have spared me from the pain of big ideas collapse. He could have spared me from the consequences of my own mistakes and missteps, but he didn't. And it wasn't about God and my big idea. It was about God and me. My ambition, my dreams, my misplaced sense of identity and value were dragged kicking and screaming up onto the altar, and now they were dead, ripped apart, like dragon skin. I realized this when I heard myself say to my wife one night, I don't want to write anything. I was ready to be done if that's what God wanted, to just rest in him and let everything else fall away. And then a week or two later, I woke up in the middle of the night with a story in my head, a story that practically wrote itself, a story that was so simple, so pure, and yet captured such a deep spiritual truth that the first time I read it to my wife, she cried. And I thought, oh, is this how it's going to work now? The next week, another idea came, and then another, and another. And before long, I had more ideas than I knew what to do with. Some so small, I could lose them in the cracks between the cushions of the couch, and others so big, they took my breath away. But each idea was either derived from or confirmed during a time of waiting on God. Each one came without a hint of anxiety about what it should be, how far it should go, how many lives it should touch. If Big Idea felt at times like rolling a giant boulder up a hill, this Felt like gliding on ice. Why is waiting on God so vital? If I'm not waiting on God, I cannot be obedient to him because I'll never know what he wants me to do. I need to put my nose in his word every day. I need to put my knees on the ground before him in prayer every day. And I need to be quiet enough to hear his whispers, whether they come directly from him or through emails from a woman I have never even met. If I'm so busy pedaling my little car that I cannot hear his directions... I am useless to him. And even if I have his directions, if I make them more important than him, I am useless to him. So what's the point? What lessons should you learn from all this? The first is simple. God loves you. 
not because of what you can do or even because of who you could become if you tried really, really hard. No, he just loves you because he made you just the way you are. He loves you, in fact, even when you aren't doing anything at all. Secondly, when it is time to do something for God, and and that time will come soon if you're listening, don't worry about the outcome. Don't worry about the 10% more or the 30% less. That's his job. Your responsibility is to simply do what he asks. And finally, and I am very serious when I say this, Beware your dreams, for dreams make dangerous friends. We all have them, longings for a better life, a happy marriage, world-changing work. But dreams are, I have come to believe, misplaced longings, false lovers. Why? Because God is enough, just God. And he isn't enough because he can make all our dreams come true. No, you've got him confused with Santa Claus or Merlin or or Oprah. (laughs) The God who created the universe is enough for us even without our dreams, without the better life, the happy marriage, the world-changing work. God was enough for the martyrs facing lions and fire. Even when the cavalry didn't show up and save the day, even when the lions and fire won. And God is enough for you. But we can't discover the truth of that statement while we're clutching to our dreams. We need to let them go. We need to give them up. In 2003, my dream died, and I discovered, once all the noise had faded away, what I had been missing all along. The impact God has planned for us doesn't occur when we're pursuing impact. It occurs when we're pursuing God. In the words of the psalmist, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for the megachurch I hope to build. So my soul pants for the million DVDs I hope to sell. No, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Not for the impact I can have, nor for the megachurch I could build, nor for the mark I could make on the world. Not for the happy wife, the healthy child, the meaningful work. My soul pants for you, O God. Let it go. Give it up. Let it die. Let Christ shred your dragon skin and lead you into a whole new life. Trust me, it's worth it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this group of people. They've gathered here in this place to learn how to run the good race, to fight the good fight, to someday hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. But let us not confuse the work we do for you with our relationships with you. Let all your children in this room find their peace and their love and their meaning and their joy in you and you alone. Amen.